Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Two weeks ago, we had some visitors come from Phoenix, Arizona in the States, and they got a great ministry to Muslims. Because many Muslims reject the New Testament, um, especially the death and the resurrection of of Jesus, one of the strategies that they shared with us um, was showing the gospel, showing the good news about Jesus, but from the Old Testament scriptures, from scriptures that they would appreciate. Um, They're not really feeling the New Testament, apart from the parts that they're feeling, right? And... um, This is a story that, that most Muslims not only believe, but are very familiar with. And it's Genesis chapter 22, and I've titled that message, The Sacrifice of a Special Son. The Sacrifice of a Special Son. Now, have you ever been in difficult, challenging, tough, trying Testing circumstances. Okay, hold that thought. Genesis 22, starting at verse 1. Going to read right through to verse 14. Genesis 22. I'm reading from the ESV, if you want to turn there and join with me. Verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, that is, the Lord said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Talk about a difficult situation. Have you ever been in a difficult, challenging, tough, trying, taxing situation? You might be like, Robert, I'm in one right now. Well, welcome to the, <laughs> the genuine features of the Christian life. And because the Bible is it's like, it's like no other book, right? It relates to real life. Would you join with me in giving your attention over the next few minutes? Genesis 22 is one of the most challenging tests that we will come across in Scripture. If there was a top 10 of, of challenges and difficult tests in the Bible, this surely has to be up near number one. Abraham is the man in focus, and it's no great wonder that he will become known as the father of faith. Now before, again, we dive into Genesis 22, although Abraham is the featured character, I'd like us to see just how much this relates to Jesus and the gospel. I want to do that. It's a bit random because normally what we'll do is we'll preach a message and then we'll kind of conclude on Jesus. But I want you from the gate, from up front, I want you to see who and what this is really about. Now, <clears throat> before we look at Hebrews 11, let's pray. Heavenly Father, just want to thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you are a gracious God. And there's nothing in this life that you ask of us that has not been exacted by yourself that you have either experienced or set example for us in. Just want to thank you that you're the God who goes before us. And because you go before us, then we can safely tread where no man may necessarily have, have tread before. Because you've gone, you've gone there before us. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Would you help us to understand that so that we may be able to endure whatever tests or trials we may face as your people. Please would you help us. And would you help us to see Jesus in ways, in tremendous ways, in ways we may never have ever seen before. Because he's the one that we look to. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. We don't look to Abraham as great and as, as an example as he is. We look to Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes on him, Father, I pray. Let today contribute to that. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 17 to 19, again, I want you to see how Genesis 22 relates to Jesus. 
verse 17, and also obviously Abraham is a part of the story. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, that's Abraham, was offering up his who? His only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called Abraham. He considered that, you know what, God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him, Isaac, back as a type. I want you to see what the New Testament says about Abraham, and we're going to see if we can see how it arrives at that from our text. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 says, These, with reference to Abraham and others, these all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And then John chapter 8, verse 56, the Lord Jesus speaking, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees who were testing him at that time. He says, listen, your father, Abraham, he rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And he was glad. <clears throat> Albert Barnes is a commentator from the mid-1800s. And, and this is what Albert Barnes said. He said, though Abraham didn't live to see the times of Christ, yet he was permitted to have a prophetic view of him. Talk about long-range sight. Abraham saw something that anticipated or prefigured or foreshadowed the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. I'm also going to argue that Abraham actually meets Jesus in Genesis 22. Look at verse 1 of our text with me. Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, after these things, after which things? Okay, what preceded this chapter? Well, back one chapter, if you've got a paper Bible, you can turn back, or you can flip back on your iPad, on your iPhone. Back in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham had just recently received the, the long-awaited promised son. Isaac. Isaac. You know how long he waited for this son? You know the drama that he went through to obtain this son? And at 100 years old now, he, he finally sees Isaac, the promise. And wrapped up in Isaac is the hope of seeing the fulfillment of the covenant that God swore to him in Genesis 12 that he ratified in Genesis 15. It's all wrapped up in this little bundle of joy called Isaac. And in conjunction with the birth of this son is attached the promises that God gave. <clears throat> and, and pretty much there's three of them that he mentions in, in, in Genesis 12. And it's one, the land. Two, that he's going to make of him, of Abraham, a great nation through Isaac. And this nation that comes through Isaac will eventually be a blessing to the nations, of which I'd argue we are the actual fulfillment of, partial fulfillment of. 
The point is, without Isaac, none of these promises can be fulfilled. So Isaac is not just any son. He's a significant son. And that in contrast to Ishmael, right, which is the son that Abraham had with Hagar, kind of illegitimately, it wasn't God's determined purpose that he had that son. And without going into it, we know that that was not just the beginning of a lot of drama for him, but also for, for us to this day. So Isaac is the son of promise. And everything now at this point looks rosy. It's like, because Isaac's there now, the promise is fundamentally, substantially now in sight. And Abraham at last decides to settle down at the end of Genesis chapter 1, which is a chapter before ours. It says, Abraham, verse 33 of, of, of chapter 21, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. Our translations say planted a grove, you know what I'm saying, in Beersheba. I remember when we moved into um, the house that we live into presently, within a couple of uh, 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 um, weeks and months, we planted a tree. If you've ever been to my house and in the back garden, you might have noticed. It doesn't grow much because we cut it back quite vigorously. One year I thought it was going to die because of the, the frost that we had, but it's still growing, it's, and it's actually an olive tree. And um, I've been able to, 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 to mark the time that we moved into that house by that tree that was planted. Abraham plants a, a tree, he plants a grove of trees because he's about to settle down now. Like the house I'm living in, really and truly, apart from going to Jamaica, I don't see myself living in another house unless the Lord has another plan. And I mean, like nowadays, it's like, what do you do? It's like, you can't even afford to move, right? Because of the prices. On my road, just across the street from me, four houses within a space of about 10 houses are all convert, having loft conversions. Can't, no one can't move. So, I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe I might move. Maybe I might downscale at some point, car. Money's tight, isn't it? So. I'm saying... Abraham settled down at the end of chapter 21. And it says he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He made it a habit of worshipping God right here in this place that was now home. Verse 34. And Abraham sojourned. Now the word can mean travel, but it also does mean to inhabit or to abide. And he may have moved around, but pretty much in terms of his, if you like, his final destination in his mind, it was going to be right here. And it says, it says, Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. In the, I think in the net translation it says, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for quite some time. I'm telling you that the bread has settled down. You know what I mean? And <clears throat> this place, the land of the Philistines, like Ashkelon, Ekron, and what's another place in, in Philistia that's really well known? Pretty much today, Gath, which is where Goliath comes from. And there's another place begin with G. I never thought of that one. Gaza. And where is that? It's on the West Bank. I mean, it's still there. That's why I love the Bible. It's rooted in real history, <laughs> real geography. You know what I mean? And what country is that? It's Israel. And this is the land that God had promised. And now Abraham is settled in that land. And just when everything seems to be great. 
Verse 1 says, And God tested Abraham. Just when everything seemed to be great. You know, one of the things, because this is kind of a part of what's in the back of my thinking as I'm sharing this, is, you, know, you know, Islam, one of the things Muslims are always doing is, is kind of testing us and wanting to say that our Bible contradicts itself. And sometimes, sometimes, I'll say this in, in, in inverted commas, sometimes it's true, seemingly. Now, they're going to find the same problem um, coming up soon, because um, I think it was James White actually found out that there are actually more copies of the Quran than they suggest there are. That's one thing. Another thing is, it's not bad to have multiple copies, manuscript copies, which are copies of the original, of an ancient text, because the more copies you have, then the more opportunity you have to compare and actually get to what is actually right. Having multiple copies is actually a blessing. It's not, oh my gosh, so many copies, how you know which one's right? It's actually a blessing. And in the King James Version, how many of you know in James chapter 1, it, it, it makes reference to the fact that God tested Abraham, but it doesn't say tested. What does it say? It says God, sorry, in Genesis 22 in the King James Version, it says God tempted Abraham. And this is where they want to um, say, oh, look, see, another contradiction in the Bible. Because in Genesis 22, it says God tempted Abraham. But then in, Gen- in James chapter 1, it says God does not tempt any man. Which one is true? Is James right or is Genesis right? Is a quote-unquote apparent contradiction. But you see, it's just, it's just a mistranslation of the original word. The word can mean tempt, but a better rendition of the word is test which is what most of our modern translations... Remember, King James is 1611. It's like 400 years old. So don't see that as a problem, especially when they come at you and say, oh, your Bible's corrupt and your Bible's full of contradictions. I heard... Um, who was it? The guy that does 24 hours through the Bible. Chuck Mister. I heard Chuck Mister say, look, anytime you come across what seems like an apparent contradiction, there's actually gold there, but you just have to dig for it. You know what I mean? And you actually find out that you come up with something absolutely glorious and amazing. Because God, God's word doesn't contradict itself. Now, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here, here am I. He said, take your son, Abraham, your only son, whom you love. You see that? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, where is Moriah? Where is Moriah? Well, it's about 50 miles east of Philistia. (laughs) I guess where you end up if you travel 50 miles roughly east of Philistia. Listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, where? In Jerusalem, where? On Mount Moriah. Modern day, Mount Moriah is on the mountain. Let me not get ahead of myself. Modern day is where the second most holy temple in Islam is constructed. It's called the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Oman. And can you see that it's on a hill? 
And can you see why this story in so many ways is significant to Muslims as well as Jews alike? This is incredible, historically speaking. This is the very spot that God is sending Abraham to. It's the very spot which the temple of Solomon was originally built on, but destroyed. And that's why there's a lot of drama right in that spot there in Jerusalem, because the old temple isn't there anymore. All they have remaining from the old temple, Solomon's old temple, or Herod's temple, really, because remember Solomon's temple was destroyed, was it 587 BC? The only thing that's left is the western wall outside the temple itself, right? And this has been reconstructed on the very site where the temple used to be. Drama. It's a t- this is on the site on Mount Moriah or on the mountains of Moriah because there's a few potential mountains and I think around there it's very, very hilly right, and mountainous. It's the temple that is Solomon's temple that was here originally which is where the sacrificial offerings were made to God for centuries. Sacrifices were offered up on this very, on this very hill, on this very mountain. And, you know, the way the temple was situated was you had an inner court, you had an outer court, right? And the outer court is where you had the, what they called King James. I got saved on the King, on the King James, read the King James for about six, six years. The outside in the outer court was the brazen laver, right? It's, it's the bronze laver, excuse me, laver, the, the bronze altar. But there also was a brazen laver, the bronze laver. And the bronze laver is where is where the priests used to wash their hands, then they'd offer up the sacrifices, and they'd be covered in blood, then they'd have to go back and have to wash their hands in the bronze laver as they're offering up sacrifices on the bronze altar. It's like a big barbecue. It's not a good way of referring to it, but it's a, it's a helpful way of referring to it. And this outer court was a part of the temple compound, And this is where the priests would offer up sacrifices to God on the behalf of the sins of Israel. This very, the very same mountain of Moriah. And and it says, also, just outside of the temple, there was a graveyard. There was was a a place that, that they called... Um, Gehenna and basically it was the dump for Jerusalem where they'd throw all the rubbish and they'd, obviously they'd burn it because they never had the same kind of and that was a good way of getting rid of the rubbish and it, and it was nicknamed Gehenna or Hades a type of hell right and not far from there also was the place of the skull or Golgotha or Calvary the place where Jesus was crucified just outside the city. This is all happening in this same area. God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering in one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God says, take your special son. 
the one upon whom all the promises hang and offer him up as a sacrifice. Now this sounds like madness. <coughs> Abraham's God for the moment sounds just like the surrounding Canaanite gods. Demanding human sacrifice. This seems so unusual and out of character for God. How does Abraham feel? Confused? Challenged? Scared? His hopes for the future potentially dashed? How does he feel? Can you possibly identify with Abraham? With regards to maybe your current circumstances or your situation? Do you have a child? Do you have children? I remember I remember when my kids were born, both of them, I cried like that. You know, you're supposed to slap the baby and the baby's supposed to cry. Well, I start crying before the baby gets slapped. I had to go find, I had to go and find a corner, especially when, when my daughter Renee was born, because she was the first. Man, when I saw that baby come out, I, I, I literally had to go find a place. It, it wasn't one of, you know, sometimes you watch a film, right, and there's people in the room. And the film gets to that point where it's very moving and emotional. And you can just about kind of hide it. You might just you know, rub your eye or, you know what I mean? You can firm it. I couldn't firm it. It was, it was too overwhelming. I, I went into the, into, into the toilet and I got down on my knees and I cried. Like, imagine you've got, you got, you got the real baby crying in the, in the, in the, in the delivery suite and you've got me, the other baby, bawling in the toilet. Bawling my eyes out. Over just the joy of seeing my, my, my daughter birthed, my son born. And, and you know, when, before I even came to dedicate them back in the first church that me, Pastor P and Pastor E were at called CCF. Before then, there's me. I don't know whether I was in the front room, like probably one morning while Helen was asleep. Holding the babies up like Simba in the, in the Lion King. How I many of you know, because at that time, that's when it came out. You know what I mean? I, like, it's like, I know every one of them songs, I know, there's me. Lord, thank you. Another emotional moment. Thank you, Lord. Offering up my children to God in dedication to him for his goodness. But then imagine having to take that child, take your child, and have to offer up that child as a sacrifice. You know, I love my kids as you love your kids. But imagine if you were Abraham. And we know that he loved his son. On a negative note, how many of you know as much as some, many of us can identify with the love that we have for our kids, isn't it, Marky? It's like, you know, contemporarily speaking, there's a lot of people that don't love their children. Many people don't love their kids, particularly fathers. I mean, we live in an age where fathers abdicate the responsibility of their children. How sad. Isaac. <clears throat> According to commentators, he's between the ages of about 15 and 35 at this point. And... <clears throat> He's Abraham's only son in that Ishmael has been sent away, remember, in chapter 21. 
after the drama of obtaining this special son, he has now to offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, as disgusting and, and inhumane as, as this sounds, and it is, thousands of years later, Abraham's disobedient descendants will actually practice human sacrifice. They will sacrifice their babies in the fire to Molech. Despicable, right? But let's not forget just how sinful our culture is. In two minds, but I'm not sure if you can see the slides from from where you're standing, but what we have is um, just a description of the abortion statistics um, for England and Wales. Uh, And these are really up to date. These are like 2013. Um, On this first table, we see a percentage of women who had one or more previous abortions and they're listed by ethnicity, which is interesting. Asian or British women, 33%. Black or British or Black British, 49%. Chinese or other ethnic groups, 31%. Mixed, 45%. White, 36%. All pretty high figures. Um, But you can see the highest one there, Black or Black British, followed by mixed. Um, That's a really terrible statistic with regards to abortion in this country. You talk about not loving children um, and offering them up as sacrifices in a sense. I think we talked about it a few weeks back. It costs about 180000 plus to raise a child like 180000 spent on the child or spent on myself. Uh, sometimes it seems like, especially by the statistics, that it's not a hard decision. This other slide talks about the percentage of women who had one or more previous abortion by age. Now, this one really shocked me because I thought that it was going to be kind of the other way round with regards to what the statistics suggest. I thought that under 18s would be ridiculously high because it would be young children, young, young people that we would be having more abortions. But can you see that it's actually the other way round? It's actually the, the 20 to 24 oh my goodness, and it jumps up from the 25 to 29 category from 34 to 44%, then from, from 44% to 47% in the 30s to, 30, to 34s, and re- pretty much stays the same to 35s and over. And that's quite shocking because older women now are seeing this as a quote-unquote way out. And I'll show you one more slide, then I'll conclude with a a clip from the Telegraph. This other slide shows abortions requiring a length of stay of one or more nights, percentage breakdown by gestation. So this is is how soon the child is terminated. Under 10 weeks gestation, I should do it the other other way around, 20 or over, 20 weeks or over, 1%. So... More mature babies are less, with regard, are, 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 are less likely to be aborted, statistically speaking. 
Under 13 to 19, between 13 to 19 weeks, 7%. 10 to 12 weeks as it gets lower, 12%. Under 10 weeks, 79%. You know what that, that statement suggests? What this statement suggests is that more women are aborting their children much sooner and to the point where abortion has now become one of the main forms of contraception. And this is the statement in the Telegraph. It says, the latest UK abortion figures suggest that abortion is being used as contraception. Thank the Lord that, you know, um, I think there's a few things. Um, I suspect I'm, a, I'm aware that many of us have a, a past, you know, and, um, and I'm sure you can sense by um, my demeanor, this is not us pointing a finger at anyone who has had an abortion whether outside or inside this room. And I'm grateful that what we're doing, even as a church, is we're seriously thinking about how we can reach out to women who sometimes don't really care and need to be educated in terms of what they're doing because it will affect them later on in their lives, if not in this life, in the next life. And, um, and we need to help those ladies. And I think, a, I think a big part of the reason, it obviously can't be the fundamental reason, but a big part of the reason it happens is because of men. I mean, women have to obviously take their responsibility, but a big part of the reason is because the men are not men. And they're treating women horrendously. And... Um, like I said, so many things to, 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 to say at this point. Um, but I'll kind of conclude in saying, you know, may God help us as we not only think through how we can help and accommodate those who come in. I say those who come in, those of us who are already in here as a church who are struggling possibly with, with stuff that relates to this in your, in your past. Thank God for, the, for, for, the, for the, the saving grace that comes through the Lord Jesus. And I mean... Um, and as a hospital, we can see people forgiven and cleansed and healed. But then also, we want to be able to help those who are outside who will be coming in. Um, and to see them helped and healed in, in, same, in, in the same manner. And also help some of these guys. I think that's part of our heart, isn't it? To reach out to guys, to see them changed by the gospel. So that they won't continue to perpetuate this pandemic And it's so painful, isn't it, when, when you see statistics like that because, you know, I'll talk about it in a minute. My, like my wife, Helen, she was, she was barren. Um, like clinically, the hospital, the doctors especially said you never have children naturally. Um, and it doesn't always happen, but for, for us, God worked, we believe God worked a miracle because it did happen completely unnaturally, uh, completely naturally. Um, but my heart goes out to, to those who have been trying to have children, possibly for years, and have not been able to conceive. And, um, you know, 
May God help us as a church to be able to... There's so many areas of hurting people. And I'm saying, may God help us to put an arm around those people and also share the genuine, substantial love of Jesus. That is the only thing that can contribute to washing away those stains. In Hebrews 9, it talks about the fact that the blood of Jesus washes away the stains in the conscience. It's one thing taking the dirty clothes to the cleaners, but how about your soul and your conscience? How do you wash and cleanse your conscience? Well, the Hebrews says the blood of Christ can do that. And that is a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing. Now, this thing about burnt offerings, this was not previously uncommon. An example of that would be Genesis 8, um, when Noah comes out of the ark and he offers up a burnt offering to the Lord in gratitude and thankfulness. So this isn't anything new with regards to where we're at in the text. The burnt offering we later find out, is the first and one of the most significant offerings in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Hmm. And it was always animal or vegetable, right? Never human. The burnt animal offering, it was a sacrifice for sin, and it would be killed, that is the animal, and it then would be dismembered, then it would be burnt to ashes, the burnt offering. On a lighter note, not to be confused with what some husbands describe as their wife's cooking, right? Burnt (laughs) offerings. (laughs) Look at verse 2 with me, otherwise we're not going to get through this today. The Lord said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice your special son. You know, Isaac means laughter. How ironic. Earlier, God says, I'm going to bless your son, Isaac. But now, God says, I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. Can you hear the seeming like, contradiction? It's like, eh? It's like, which, which one is it? Lord. See, and Abraham was familiar with sacrifice, but this was not an ox. It wasn't a lamb. It wasn't a goat or a ram. It was his son. And Abraham's already previously lost a son in Ishmael. You know, it's one thing to claim to trust God when you're waiting for something. It's another thing to trust God and obey him after the thing is received. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Ah, I missed an opportunity there. When did Abraham... When did did, did he raise up? When did he get up? Early in the morning, you know. I wonder if he told his wife, Sarah... What God had said to him that he should do with his son. <laughs> Sarah said no. <laughs> ah, Sarah, that is. <laughs> I mean, how would she have reacted as a mother? It's like funny, me and Helen just been praying about things recently. 
And we've been looking at the story of the prodigal son. Isn't it interesting, in the story of the prodigal son, you don't see any reference to the prodigal son's mother. I think for, you know, at least for one reason, we know how mums would, would, would be feeling. We know how Sarah would be feeling if she knew. Now, we don't know whether or not she did know. All we know is he got up in the morning. I don't know. Was that in order to disappear unnoticed? I don't know. It doesn't say. Or maybe, maybe, Abraham is just efficiently obedient and expressing his faith and trust in God. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. What must that have been like? I mean, you don't cut wood in a minute, right? It's not like going to Sainsbury's and buying barbecue set, right? What was he thinking as he's chopping this wood? And he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, this is a 50-mile journey, as I mentioned. <clears throat> it's a three-day-long journey. And this was no... Is the film called Are We There Yet? You not seen Are We There Yet? <laughs> this ain't a road trip like in a big 4 by 4 and smooth tarmac. Nice music. And little knickknacks. To snuck on it on the journey. This is this is not that type of journey, right? How hard was this trip? I mean, what did they talk about? What does Abraham say to his son? I mean, seventy-two hours. I mean, you must say something about something. But what does Abraham say? Well, we'll we'll get a little bit of insight to the conversation at, at least at a latter point. Verse four on the third day. On the third day, is that a significant pointer to another later story? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. See that? Remember what we read earlier about Abraham's perspective? Abraham, I would argue from this verse, is convinced that both he and Isaac will return. Therefore, we see where the writer of Hebrews gets his insight from. Abraham is under the conviction that even if he has to sacrifice his special son, that God would resurrect him if he had to from the dead. In a sense, if you're familiar with this part of Genesis, you know that Isaac has already been brought to life in a sense. Because I said earlier, Hebrews talks about the deadness of Sarah's womb, right? So for life to come from that womb is a miracle. So to some degree... If God could do that, then what would prevent God from, from raising him from the dead? He brought him from a dead situation, didn't he? He can bring him back again. God had already worked a miracle. Abraham is believing that if God had done it once, he can do it again. Verse 5, stay here 
with the donkey. You lot, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do you hear that? The verse I showed you earlier. It's funny, isn't it, when you look at things from a fresh point of view. Verse 17, we've already read it. Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He, that is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. From which he also received him back as a type. Abraham believed that whatever happened, God was able to resurrect his special son. I mean, he had to in order to see the promise fulfilled. God had to. Or otherwise, he would have been found guilty of breaking his own promise. And that could never happen. In the midst of what seems like difficult, challenging, tough, trying, testing, taxing circumstances, we must not fail to trust God's promises, regardless of what it may look like, regardless of what it may feel like. We must not fail to trust God's promises. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Wow. The father laid the wood on the back of his son, who then proceeded to carry it up the hill. Could this be coincidental? Again, not sure if you can see the slide. It's Isaac carrying the wood up the hill on his back. Wood. John chapter 19, verse 17, speaking about the Lord Jesus, says he went out. That's from the main part of the city of Jerusalem. He went out bearing his own cross. Incidentally made of wood. To the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. It's Calvary. Could this be coincidental? Or is this clearly a type, as we saw in Hebrews 11? An anticipation, a prefigure or foreshadow of something that which was to come. It said in Abraham and he... When they got to the top of the hill, he took in his hand a fire and a knife. Because they'd gone up there together. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father Abraham. Not sure if they'd had a conversation up to this point. Or if at this point, Isaac's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. I mean, who knows? Maybe Isaac wasn't the sharpest tool in the box, right? I I know I'm not the brightest star in the sky. You know what I mean? I'd be like... Maybe it's the pennies just dropped for him. Wait a minute. Dad. <laughs> he said, here. <laughs> well, go on. Dad said, here am I, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering, Dad? 
I mean, talk about the knife that's apparently going to penetrate the heart of Isaac. Those words must have been like a knife in the heart of Abraham. Dad, fire, wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, it's a perfectly fair question to ask under the circumstances. No animal? His dad doesn't have a bow and arrow to hunt for an animal, just a knife to slaughter the sacrifice. Verse 8, Abraham said, in mortal words, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Notice, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The Lord will provide. In Hebrew, it's... You know, you know what, it's, what, what, what it is in Hebrew? The name of God? Da, 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 da. My provider, his grace is sufficient. Jehovah Jireh. I'm going to try and pronounce it in Hebrew. Richard will tell Richard will correct me afterwards. Our resident Hebrew scholar. <laughs> Bruv, I saw you in the in the um, in the Oak Hill um, newsletter thing, man. Banging article, brother. Pastor E, I saw you in there too. In another in another in another version. Heather was going through a lot of our paperwork last night. And, Jehovah Jireh. Richard's studying Hebrew at Oak Hill College. Just, just in case. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And it's actually more than that. It means, Jireh means to see. To see. The Lord will see. That is, he will see the need and he will provide on the basis of that need. Sounds a little bit like, is it Matthew 6? Seek the Lord. No. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. You know what I'm saying? And it's like the Sid Sparrow. You know what I'm saying? He, he doesn't knock out himself to try and find food. God provides. Look at the flowers of the field. They don't spin and toil. And God provides. It's like the Lord sees, isn't it? The Lord knows where you're at, and he sees, and he promises to provide. The, Lord's, the Lord will see, he will see the need and provide the provision when in difficult circumstances, I remember mom, my mom, any time we had our, our, like our face against the wall, I used, to, I, I used to always remember hearing my mom say, don't worry, the Lord will provide. And he always did. Because he doesn't change, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. The Lord will see to it himself, says Abraham. The Lord will see and provide for himself a lamb for an offering. The King James, man, I love the King James rendering. I think sometimes some of the translations get it perfect. Sometimes some of them are just slightly. That's why you, it's helpful to, to look at multiple translations. We've learned as we try to uh, utmost to try and teach the Bible, which is a really hard task. Um, the King James Version, listen to how it, 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 it phrases that verse. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. 
And he does. 1,800 years later. Listen to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 9 and 10. And they made his grave, this particular individual, who the broader context of Isaiah 53 references to be the sacrifice for sin, a lamb. Verse 9, and they made his grave. Imagine the lamb is actually a person. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. If, you, if you're familiar with your New Testament, it was Joseph of Arimathea who buried the body of Jesus in his tomb. And he was a rich man. Wow. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Can you see God the Father laying the wood on his special son, sacrificing his special son, Jesus? In John chapter 1, verse 29 says the next day, <clears throat> this is John the Baptist speaking as he's beginning to preach and encourage individuals to repent, to turn away from their sin and to turn back to God. He says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here in Genesis 22, in an amazing way, we... We are seeing the story of the real sacrifice of a special son. End of verse 8 in Genesis 22, back in our text. So they went both of them together. I think this is so beautiful. You think about Jesus. When he went to the cross, remember all his brethren ducked out on him. All the disciples, they left him and he was on his own. I don't even know Jesus wasn't on his own. The Father was with him. The Father was with him. And it was so dark. It got so dark for Jesus, even to the point where he himself was like, like, Father, you know what I mean? Like, where are you? And it's, and, and, and I think, I mean, where can God go, right? Psalm 139, David said, Lord, if I, make, if, if, I got, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in, in Gehenna, if I make my bed in hell, Lord, you're there. There ain't nowhere you can go from God. And I mean, but you can be in such a dark situation sometimes. That's, that's what it feels like. It's like, Lord, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you see, there actually was a point where Jesus was forsaken by the Father. Where he became the substitute. He became this, the propitiation. That is, he took our place and he took the punishment that we deserve. It's like jumping in front of a, a bullet. And the wrath of God was impacted on Jesus. In that sense... The father just stepped back and allowed a Mack truck to hit Christ.
so it says they, Abraham and his, and his son, they went to the place of sacrifice together. It's funny that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, but I think sometimes we see glimpses in the Old Testament that actually illuminate the New Testament. They went, both of them, together. And you can be encouraged that the Lord is with you. I mean, he's not a man that he should lie. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9, Genesis 22. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. Now, if it wasn't tough up to this point, man... Abraham built the altar there, took time to construct that altar, knowing what it was going to be for. And he laid the wood in order. And then he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. There's a lot that we can say about Abraham, but I think that there has to be some mention and reference to Isaac. Because Isaac wasn't... He wasn't, he wasn't fresh out the delivery suite. Isaac was at least 15 years old, if not older. And Abraham is over 100 years old. How many of you know, if, if Isaac like, like figured out what was going on, and I'm sure he did, once his dad started to bind him up, right? <laughs> so like, he could have broke them bounds. He could have just pushed over. His dad was up. He could have just pushed, pushed, pushed him over. You know, it's like that, isn't it, for some kids? Sometimes you get to the point where your kids are little, you can bark at them, you can stand over them, you're stronger than them, like in our Matilda. You know, I'm big and you're small, I'm strong and you're weak, right? We can do that, but then your kids get to a point where they're bigger than you. You know what I mean? You have to, you have to, you have to switch tactics. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's there and, I don't know, Isaac, Isaac could have just, if, if anything, he probably would have been disrespectful and pushed his dad over a punch him, but he probably he could have just run off. I think Isaac deserves some ratings. And I think, exactly, for his obedience, and I think fundamentally, his obedience to his father. You know, you know what kids are like, don't you? It's like, They'll stand at the top of the banister like four, like four steps down. You say jump. They don't even think twice. They're like, yay. Just this incredible trust. I mean, it changes when they get a bit older, right? Not just because they're, they're scared to jump, because they're heavier to catch. <laughs> but Isaac allows his father to, to bind him and lay him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, love them buts. My mom calls them conjunctions. They're not always bad. A but sometimes can be bad, you know what I mean? But sometimes the but can be, can be a blessing. A blessed but. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven... And now this is amazing. I don't have much time left, but I really wanted to make this point because I think it's mind-blowing. This is amazing. <clears throat> Remember I said that I'm going to try to help us to see Jesus actually turn up in the text? This angel of the Lord 
is potentially Jesus. This character pops up periodically in the Old Testament and never in the New Testament, apart from possibly in Revelation chapter 1. And it's the angel of the Lord. It seems on nearly every occasion when he's referenced in the Old Testament, he's more than just an angel, or you know the word angel means messenger, right? It seems like he's more than that. In Genesis chapter, in Judges chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, now listen to what he says and how he says it, I brought you up from Egypt. Now wait a minute, who brought Israel up out of Egypt? So who's this guy chatting about he, like me, like I? Brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. Hey, I said I will never break my covenant with you. You see them pronouns? I, me, my, you. He's speaking in the first person. Sounds a bit like God. In Judges chapter 13, excuse me, I don't have the reference up there. We've got the story of Samson's mother. I think Pastor E opened the service a couple of weeks ago with this. The story of Samson's mother and father. The angel of the, the, angel of the Lord in Judges 13 says, with reference to who he is, I am. And makes reference to his name. Quick test. See who was listening that day. If you were here, hardly anyone's here at 10 o'clock, but 11 o'clock. But... Um, did you hear what his name was, if you're, unless you're familiar with the chapter? Did you hear what the angel of the Lord said his name was? Ah, oh, come on now. Hmm. said his name was wonderful. Wonderful. It's actually a reference to Jesus. Wonderful, counsellor. Then in the story, Manoah says to his wife, you know what, what, wifey, because I don't think he gives her name, you know what, I think, I think we've just seen God, he says in that chapter. So the angel of the Lord is, if not a theophany, which is an appearance of God, possibly the father, right? <clears throat> the angel of the Lord is a Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, wow, it says, And the angel of the Lord, verse 2, same person again, appeared to him, and it's always definite article, the angel of the Lord, appeared to him. Who's it speaking about? Who did he appear to in Exodus chapter 3? Moses, right? The angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, Moses, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. It wasn't actually a burning bush, because if it was a burning bush, the bush would be burning. Anyway, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Hey. Moses, Moses, I always wonder, I'm gonna come, no. I always wonder when God calls, or you see somebody called twice in the Bible, I wonder if it's because 
they hear the voice and they're like, right, is that, is that voice actually speaking to me? And then you hear it again, like, oh, right, okay, it is speaking to me. You know what I mean? And then we always say then, particularly the men, right, because they need to hear it twice because more often than not, they're not listening. He said, I'm here. Or here I am. Verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. This is the voice from the bush, which is God, right? God called to him out of the bush. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, this is the person speaking, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 13 goes on. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And then what does the Lord Jesus say in John chapter 8, verse 58? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I would argue quite strongly and vigorously from the scriptures that Jesus is God. And we're monotheistic, aren't we? So we're not saying that God is anything other than one, but God is three in one. Three persons in one. And it goes on to say a little bit later in John, it says that they picked up stones to stone Jesus. Why? Why? Because he, thank you Tim, being a man, made himself out to be God. Don't listen to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll tell you that Jesus ain't God. But my question always to them is, wait a minute. Should I believe you or should I believe the people that were standing there at the time? Because the people who were standing there at the time understood him to be God. Or at least he was communicating that he was God. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. Who is the great I am? Is Jesus. So I would argue strongly that this is quite possibly a pre incarnate appearance of Christ in Genesis chapter, 11, chapter 22, verse 11. Listen to how this messenger, this angel, refers to himself, and we're nearly done. Listen to how he refers to himself back in our text, right? Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham! Abraham! Remember Moses, Moses? And he said, here am I. He said, verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Don't you dare, don't touch him. (laughs) For I know that you fear God. Now listen to the pronouns. I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Only a Trinitarian perspective of the scriptures is able to hold all of the verses in tension. God is more than one. In the sense that he is one, but he's manifested in three persons. 
And there's two of them right there in verse 12. Who is speaking? It's the angel of the Lord. Who was it in verse 1 that tested Abraham? God. If you can see it, I say it's proof from the Old Testament. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes. Wow, what a moment. Euphoria and jubilation would be an understatement. He looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up happily as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord sees and he provides. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Remember that was past, that was pre-crucifixion, that was pre-Jesus. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Understand the context. Can you see how Abraham, I would argue, saw Jesus and saw the day that Jesus would become the special son who would be sacrificed. And he saw the day and he rejoiced. And he was glad in it. I say he was glad at that moment. John 8.56, I showed it to you earlier. says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And he was glad. Of course he was. Can you imagine the joy and celebration that Abraham and Isaac, especially Isaac, right, experienced? I suspect the walk down the hill was a completely different walk compared to the walk up the hill. Let me summarize and highlight some of the wonderful similarities to these two wonderful accounts and the parallels of Jesus as we wrap up. Isaac, like Jesus, was named before his birth. Both Isaac and Jesus were referred to as only beloved sons. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten, beloved son. Both Isaac and Jesus were sons of promise. Both Isaac and Jesus were born miraculously. One to a barren mother and the other to a virgin. Two miracles. Although 1,800 years apart, Mount Moriah is exactly the same place where God's special son, Jesus, would be sacrificed. Isaac was nearly pierced. Jesus was actually pierced. Isaac would have been pierced once through the heart. Jesus was pierced hands, feet, and heart. Isaac carried the wood up the hill on his back. Jesus carried a cross on his back made of wood. A ram was caught in a thicket by the horns. Jesus' head was wrapped In a crown of thorns. Later a nameless servant. It's beautiful man. The whole Bible just comes together like. Later a nameless servant is sent out by Isaac's father. With gifts to get a bride for his son Isaac. Later the father sends the Holy Spirit with gifts to get a bride for Jesus. Rebecca becomes the bride of Isaac, having never seen or met him. The bride of Christ will marry Jesus, the bridegroom, 
having never met him. Abraham, Isaac's father, offered up his only son, the son that he loved as a sacrifice, and God the Father offered up Jesus, his beloved, only begotten son, as a sacrifice. Last one. Abraham, last two. Abraham believed that if necessary, God wouldn't let his son die, but raise him up from the dead. Jesus trusted his heavenly father to raise him from the dead, and he did. In verse 11, we see that Abraham didn't withhold or spare his son, right? His only son, the son that he loved. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, in reference to God the Father, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The sacrifice of a special son. Shall we pray? I hesitate to say Heavenly Father. Father, not because I'm, I'm fearful, not because I'm afraid, not because I've never said it before, but it just has a, a fresh ring that you are our Heavenly Father. And we thank you that in a beautiful picture you painted your fatherhood in a way that at the time seemed very, very extreme, unusual, and even contradictory. And it's like a tapestry on the back, on the front, on the back of a tapestry, Father, it just looks messed up. But when you look on the front of the tapestry, it's beautiful. It makes complete sense. And um, we thank you that Jesus makes sense of the whole Bible. And for that, we want to say thank you. And not only does he make sense of the whole Bible, Jesus is the focus of the whole Bible. And Father, my prayer is today that you would help us to see how wonderful and glorious, not disgusting and tragic, but how wonderful and glorious the sacrifice of your special son was and how it relates to us. We thank you for that in the name of your special son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.